This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues using the principles of the Baha'i Faith. If you want information on the Baha'i Faith specifically, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B A H A I.org. Or you can call the toll free number 1 800 22 Unite. Today I'm playing an interview with Dr. Gene Swinney, a Baha'i from Amherst, Massachusetts, who teaches at UMass. Before getting her doctorate, she spent two years in Nigeria and six years in Botswana. I started the interview by asking Jean where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I'm a native New Yorker, and I was born and raised in Brooklyn. And at that time, it was really fun. Um, We grew up in a neighborhood, the same kids I grew up with, I went to school with, and we played together. You did everything on the block. So it was really nice, and one of the other things that only city kids would do on weekends, we'd go up to the Museum of Natural History, or we'd go up to the Museum of Modern Art. That was our weekend excursions, you know. So you jump on the subway, you go in a group, because it was a four-family house that I grew up in, and there were a lot of girls, and so I had all my playmates all built in, and it was very good. I guess what happens, I think, that may be a little unique with Brooklynites versus maybe other people is that what I know in growing up, my world was Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. I walked to school. I never hardly went into Manhattan. You know, as an adult, I would go in occasionally. I lived in Brooklyn. I went to school in Brooklyn. I worked in Brooklyn. Mm It was not fun for me to travel on the subway. So if the job wasn't in Brooklyn, I couldn't consider it. So my whole life evolved around that. And what a lot of people don't know is that Brooklyn in the old days used to be its own government. And it's also the largest of the boroughs. So you could also be really very self-contained. But um, And that was, my na- that was my world. And it's interesting, until I sort of went to nursing school, my world really was in Bed-Stuy, you know, so I don't know about the other part of the world, but that was my world. Mm. It was all in sepia, you know. (laughs) What school did you go to for elementary school? I went to all public schools. Mm. I was the first of my mother's four children, and I went to all public schools. My other sister, I was the experimental person probably, <laughs> but I went to all public schools mm-hmm. and all schools you could work to, mm-hmm. walk to. Mm-hmm. Until I went to high school, I never even had to take a bus to school. Then I went to an all-girls school and I did take a bus, but still close. But for public school, for junior high school, I went to public PS70 and junior high school 35 and we walked. Mm-hmm. No school buses. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so this was a private high school you went to? Public. The, hall, the all-girls school? Public. Really? They had At, an all-girls public right. school? At that time, you had an all-girls 
high school in an all boys high school and we were like matching schools and both really good schools the boys school was probably a lot more uh rated highly rated than the girls school like a lot of the boys went to uh Stuyvesant they tried to also get us to go into Hunters so that these were public schools and at that time that's that's what it was, you okay. know, they were not mixed. Okay, so that's the way it was for a long time? Or? Right. After I left New York, then it has changed. Because, see, I grew up in New York, I went to school in New York, and then I left New York. So um, over the period of time that I left, it, it's now a boys and girls high school. And, of course, they rebuilt it because it was an old school, but at that time it was all girls education, all boys, and it was okay. You know, there was no stigma attached, and yeah. that was by choice yeah. because there were co-ed schools that I could have gone to, but my choice was an all-girls high school. And, of course, my mother's choice. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she worked in the rectory, so, you know, you don't go to Catholic school, all-girls school is the next the best uh, thing. <laughs> so you grew up in a Catholic <clears throat> background? Sort of mix. My grandparents, specifically my grandmother, was sanctified and holy. So she was very much a very traditional Baptist, Southern Baptist. As I said, if you know anything about Southern religions, that's what she, well, sanctified and holy, and that's a Baptist Protestant faith. And um, the Church of God in Christ. And, um, we would go to church on Sundays and we'd have to sit in the front row and church was an all-day affair. However, my mother worked in the parish and she became Catholic. And so that we were sort of mixed Christians, you know, mixed with uh, Church of God in Christ and also Catholicism, you know. So my sisters and my brother... They were Catholic, but now one of my middle sisters, she's Protestant. So, you know, we're all mixed up. The only thing that we have in common is that we're people of God. Mm. You know, that's the common thread. But traditionally, it was a very strict Protestant or Baptist faith I grew up in. Because mm -hmm. I, I, being the first child, I was more involved with my grandparents. And that was also very traditional very cultural for us that you know that my grandparents was there my parents were there but because I was the first child I was sort of like my grandmother's child I was always around them a lot mm -hmm, mm -hmm. more so than my other sisters and brothers mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so your mother's first choice would have been to send you to a Catholic school I don't know if it was her first choice my second sister did go mm -hmm. you know and she went to Catholic elementary, high school, um, did not go to a Catholic college. And then my youngest sister, she, my brother didn't go to Catholic school, but then, and then my youngest sister went to technical high school. So we were all sort of mixed up. Uh, probably her focus was trying to get us in a good school because we were, we grew up in Bed-Stuy where I'm an inner city person. That's my frame of reference. Right. And looking back, are you glad you went to an all-girls school versus a co-ed school? Or? I don't have any feelings about right. it. I had a boyfriend all through high school, right. so 
you know, it didn't make any difference. I didn't go to high school to meet him. I already knew him, and we went out together until I went to nursing school. You know, it it just, it it had no meaning to me. Mm -hmm. It was just fine. I felt comfortable. I had a whole group of girls that I hung with, and a couple I'm still friends with. Really? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Because they're neighborhood girls, so mm-hmm. when I go home, we'll call sometimes, do lunch or something. Just sort of depends on the schedules. So after high school, what happened? I went to nursing school, and I met a whole new cohort of friends, and then um, that was a new experience for me, and probably the first experience that took me out of Bed-Stuy. You know, the first time I ventured beyond my real comfort level. And it was an interesting experience um, going to a predominantly white school, coming out of a, essentially a black experience. So it took some adjusting. But of course, we um, sort of like had our group of support and were able to do it and do it successfully. Yeah. And where was that? This was at in New York. I went to New York University. So did you commute or did you stay Commuter. There? Mm-hmm. Commuter schools. No, we could not, I could not afford to live in the dorms. I, if I could have afforded it, I would have gone to Howard. That was my, oh. ri- Howard was my real choice. And, um, but because we didn't have the money for Howard, I went to school in New York. Yeah. What happened after you finished nursing school? Um, one of my buddies and I, we decided we would take off and um, we worked for a year to get licensed because, you know, in nursing, you can't practice unless you're licensed. And then after that, we decided we wanted to travel because we were both products of Brooklyn and had not gone very far out of our city. And we went to California to experience. And that was interesting. I think I stayed out there about two years, and um, that's where I became a Baha'i. We sort of... On the trip? No, what we did is, it was in, during our work experience, it was during the, during the two years that we lived there, I became a Baha'i, you know. So you chose <laughs> California as the place to work? We just went. Okay. We wanted to go, and we and just... You, and you ended up there for two years? Uh-huh, okay. we would work, and save some money and then stop working and enjoy and then go back because, you know, we were young and nurses never have a problem getting a job and we were trying to enjoy an experience and that's what we did. That's great. So what's the story about you running into the Bahamas? Well, um, during the time we were in California, I sort of like was not as involved with the church because it wasn't as convenient for me to go to church. At that time, I was Catholic but I didn't always go. And um, my girlfriend, my roommate that we traveled with, um, had started to date a Baha'i. Be- oh, no, I have to backdrop. Before she met him, we had started to explore Zen, you know, and we did a little exploration in Zen Buddhism. And then there was this guy that I met, and we were talking one night about religion. So here's the four of us sitting down just talking about religion, spiritual awareness, and things like that. And then this guy mentioned the Baha'is, and we're saying, the Baha'is? Who are the Baha'is? So none of us really knew. And so he says, oh, okay, one rides my bus. So, so 
so he was going to talk to his friend that was on his bus to, so he could give us the real deal about the Baha'is. And after that, we met him. He brought him by to sort of like talk with us. And then my girlfriend and roommate started to date the Baha'i guy. So he would come by and we would talk but he never really talked about the faith with us. What he did is he would leave literature. And for me, that was probably the best approach because even though I was not going to church religiously, I still believe that you really could not really become involved in other religions because at that time, Catholicism was still very strict in its rules. So he would leave us things around the house. And I remember there were some little blue books and we would read them. And then what he did one night was to invite us to a social affair. And it was essentially a party. And what California, this was in Los Angeles. And at that time, what they had were a lot of youth. So we fit in just wonderfully. And so we really were not taught about the faith we were socialized into the faith you know we we sort of did the social things and I was working evenings so I didn't really I didn't have unlimited evening times but we did social things and um it was very interesting because they just they just accepted us on that level and I don't think except for one I may have gone to two firesides. No, a fireside is? Uh, Baha'i meetings. I may have gone to two Baha'i meetings. The first one I went to, it's my, it was my boyfriend who was not Baha'i, my girlfriend and I, so none of us were Baha'is, <laughs> going to find this Baha'i meeting. And it was up in the hills of, somewhere in the hills of Hollywood. And I'm saying, oh, my God, where are we going? Where are you taking us? You know, and so we finally get to where we were supposed to go to. And we go in the house and we look around and I see this room full of white people, you know, and we had traveled from I don't know when. And I'm saying, where are we at? So we sit down and then who was the speaker we heard was Julie Mitchum she's Robert Mitchum's sister oh my gosh and she's a Baha'i oh did you know that no, yeah she was a, she I don't know if she's still alive or not but she's mm -hmm. a Baha'i so we sit down and we hear it and you know I I listened I was it was okay you know it was interesting here again it was just still a very social event for me at that time and so um, that was it. Then we met Eulalia Bobo. She is Joe Lewis's sister. The fighter? Uh-huh. Oh, wow. You didn't know she was? Oh, okay. Eulalia Bobo is a Baha'i. Was a Baha'i. She's recently died. Okay. So she befriended us because what we would do, we would just go by her house and we would sit and talk. But not about the faith necessarily because we didn't have any family in California so they would invite us by for dinner and we would just go and talk. So I, I guess so these two young, immature young ladies because at, at that time we were really, we were just out of school for two years 
and she just befriended us and we would sit and talk and so we would hear about the faith indirectly and that was our exposure so we would hear about Baha'u'llah and then there was one night there was a man who talked and I don't even remember his name but as a Baha'i now I remembered his words and what he said he was talking about the faith you know and some of it was very new you know and um, he said if I knew now what I knew before I became Baha'i. He says, I don't really know if I could do this because the responsibility is so very great. And at that time, you know, it didn't really mean anything, but as a Baha'i now, I've often thought about his words, and I can't remember his names, but I remember those words about the responsibility of being a Baha'i. Well, for me and June, which is my like sister cousin, um, because we've been friends and we still are, and we both became Baha'is. So I became Baha'i first and then she became Baha'i. Um, but what happened is that when I became Baha'i, I sent Eulalia a note. I said, did you think that these two flighty girls would ever become a Baha'i? You know, um, but it was very interesting because it was all about love and support and really not about religion. And it was probably the only way I would have become because I was still very much involved emotionally in Catholicism, even if not spiritually. And it's like even my priest, um, I never really told him I when I became a Baha'i because I didn't have that kind of courage. My mother told him, uh, but I never really told him because he was always so kind and very much... I, I grew up as a young kid around the rectory, so he's he knew me, so I could never really do that. I thought it would be very hurtful to him, for him to think he spent that much time in me, and, and here I am becoming something else. So, um, but I didn't become Baha'i in California. I became Baha'i in New York, because I, even though... It is not the Baha'is in New York who prepared me for Baha'u'llah. It really was the California Baha'is. And then after we returned back and we would think about it. And at first, and the first reading, because I really wasn't uh, into a lot of meetings, but I did read. And at that time, what, there were uh, two guys who would come by and go through the writing sometimes with us and answer our questions, but just to respond to questions. And then at first I says, okay, if I become anything, I guess I can become Baha'i, you know. And so over a period of time, and then when I thought I was ready, and then I was really, I had to really pray on it, and I had some personal challenges, and 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 I I had to really, and I says, and I I always, and I still do pray for a sign, you know. But up yeah. until just before saying yes, I wanted to become a Baha'i, I still wasn't sure. But then. Bahola did send me a sign, you know, and of course it's always very personal yes. between you and God, right. but because I would flip-flop, you know, is this really right? Should I be? Am I really doing the right thing, you know? And of course my grandmother, who was so upset, um, she felt I was just going to die and go to hell because of her being a very traditional, uh, close-knit 
in her faith Christian. Um, but uh, I just said, well, I think that this is what I want to be. And I have not really regretted the decision. I only regret that I probably have not done more. I have not served more. But I, I often feel that I don't know what my life would be like without the faith. You know, and I'm the only Baha'i in my family. Uh, Brooks is said he's Baha'i, but he's still young and finding his own way, torn between the old world and new world. So I just leave him because I think it's up to him and Baha'u'llah. Brooks being your son. Yes, yeah, it's up to him because he'll go between being a Christian, being a, a Baha'i, being a Muslim. I said, well, it's good. It's all God. Mm. You know, that's my my bottom line is always this is a house of God, and if it's of God, it's good. Mm-hmm. And in the Baha'i writings, it says that if a man is a true Christian or a true Jew, that is beloved in the sight of God. Mm-hmm. What caused you to move back to New York? My family. I uh, we just I never went out there to live. Yeah, but at some point, two years seemed like enough. And we just we just we spent we. It was it, you know. It, was it, it wasn't a specific time. Mm-hmm. A few things happened that mm-hmm. I wasn't happy about, and we just said, "Well, we'll go home." Great. You know, we'll get another job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's been my mo. This, <laughs> I, I probably have been here longer than any other place in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I've mm-hmm. been blessed that I don't that jobs has not been my problem. Right. So, and once you don't have a problem, you can you can be as free as the wind, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so how long did you stay back in New York? I, I stayed in New York until I went back and I went back to school. And you went back to school to? Get a um, master's degree, you know. In nursing? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I went back to school and then I dropped out, I, I made a commitment of going to spread the word of God. And I felt that this is what I wanted to do. I was able to do it. You know, I was afraid. I knew I could get a job. I didn't have a job when I left, but I wasn't afraid. You know, I prayed about it, and I said, okay. Once again, I always have this tension with my family, you know, when I want to do something. But um, they've been very supportive, and I I went. And where did you go? I went to Africa, yeah. And I went the first, I went twice. The first time I went to Africa, I went to Nigeria. Um, and I went to Zaria, which was a small town, small village in northern Nigeria, Muslim. And um, it was an interesting experience. And I guess one of the things that I came away from that experience with is that I was very naive and and that for a young, single, black woman, I should have been better prepared, you know, and and not even to speak about and going to a Muslim area, you know, 
it was extremely challenging. But I, I left really because I was always getting sick. I couldn't drink the water. I was, oh, even though I did my own cooking, it was very challenging to me physically. Um, it was a very difficult experience for me. Um, and I left at the end of two years. I worked at Amatabello University. And, you know, I, I when I first came, I stayed with a family in um, Lagos. And we went all over trying to get jobs for me. And then finally, <laughs> I got one. And then I got a permit and I moved north. And it was interesting. And I worked at local wages because I was just there for purpose. And I ended up coming, I left at that time, came back home, got my health in order. And it took really a long time, especially my stomach. Even now, there are things that I can't tolerate well, you know. And then after a while, felt, once again, I started to get restless, which is my spirit. And I was reading the New York Times one day, and I said, oh, did you see this job? And I interviewed for it, and I got it. And it was a job with Mahari Medical College, USAID, and the government of Botswana. So this time I had my job before. <laughs> and that, of course, was a lot better. And um, I went, and I spent six years this time, and I wasn't sick. But it was also a lot more protected for me. And the country is different. The Matswana are different people, and the country is different, and it's um, it was a, it was a, a lot more comfortable for me, and um, I ended up really liking Botswana a lot. I felt it was my second home, and at that time, it was the only place I had lived longer than my birth home. You know, and so I felt it was my second home. And I met many wonderful Matswana um, people that I'm still involved with now. One of, my, like my boss, was here maybe a year and a half ago, and I went into Washington and visited with them. So those are very loving relationships that I maintained. And with some of the Baha'is there, some I, I have, you know, when you leave, it's all, for me, it's hard to continue to write and maintain that, but it was very much like a family, and that's one of the things that I did really like about Botswana. It was small, it was very safe, you know, and you could leave your door open and things would be okay. I didn't have that kind of feeling when I was in Nigeria, but I did in Botswana, and I loved it. As I said, it was my, my second home for a long time and the only place that I worked at and lived at longer than my natural home. Now it's Amherst, uh, so you can tell how I haven't really been. You know about how long I've been here, so you see I don't, you know, I haven't, I don't stay in one space a lot for a long time, but this place is mine next longest place. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you were working as a nurse there? Yeah. yeah. That I, I was a, a part of a public health team and it was myself, two other nurses, and a health educator and we were working directly for Meharry Medical College and then uh, 
working, they had the contract and working for the government of Botswana. So I had essentially two bosses. I had Mahari Medical College in the government of Botswana. And what we did was develop a public health uh, program for them, uh, did a lot of in-servicing of their nurses, and I did a lot of going out to the villages and doing updates with them, bringing them in for in-service reviews. We sent a whole cadre of them to the U.S., like some came in for nurse practitioners, some came in to get their Ph.D. So it was educating the nurses there to return and training many of them in-country for the additional responsibilities. And what were the factors that had you leave? My contract was over. That was a six-year contract, and I came home, um, and I, I had a lot of ambivalence. My first year home, I spent a lot of time trying to leave the U.S. again. didn't know how I would do in New York or in the U.S. because in Africa, everything was very natural. Everything was from the heart. It wasn't... Uh, Sometimes I feel, sometimes I think things are very pretentious here and very uh, made complex when it should not be. You know, I could go out to a village and sit down and talk with people that I didn't know and, and befriend them without all of these other levels that I feel here and I did I was very honest but they know that my quality is that I, I tend to be honest and I said I don't know if I can live in the US you know that our lives were consumed is that I've always I was always very busy so I always had my work and then on weekends we were always doing things for the faith and I and it's interesting here people are more busy you know and you can fall in that same pattern I can say oh I should be doing ABC and 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 so I and it's much of what I knew would happen you know so um, and, and and as I said, that was one of my fears. But I, as I said, I spent that whole time trying to get back, and I couldn't. And of course, I went back to school. <laughs> <laughs> when you don't know what to do, go back to school. <laughs> and I went back to school. Uh, first, I moved down to New, uh, Louisiana because I had a sister down there, and then uh, because by that time I couldn't, I wasn't happy with the cold climate. And so I moved to Louisiana. One of my sisters was there. And I worked there a while at LSU um, in New Orleans. And then after that, I um, went back to school. And I took a leave and went down to, I went to uh, University of Texas at Austin. And I went to school. And then when I finished, I came back into I moved in north into Lake Charles because I wanted a smaller town. And I stayed there until my mother's health started to weaken. And when I came to Amherst, it was specifically to do my daughter bit. You know, by this time, my mother is ill and she's confined to bed. So it wasn't fair for my sister and her family to do all of it. And I could then live in Amherst, commute back and forth and fulfill my obligations, and that's what I did. And How did your mother go from New York? She was still in New York. Amherst was close to New York. I was in Lake Charles, 
and UMass over maybe they waited for me about two years. The first time they tried to recruit me, I wasn't interested. For what? Uh, to teach here, and then after my mother started to become weaker, and they contacted me, then I became interested. Because then I I could live in Amherst and commute back and forth to New York. So before my mother passed away, now three years, I used to go back and forth to New York a lot. So I would work here, but my life was really in New York. If you notice, you never really saw me a lot because I was working in there. And I would give my sister respite care so she could do things with her husband and family. So I was really back and forth. I don't go down as much now, but we do all holidays at home because we have a very strong family commitment. So I never spend holidays here. And even though I'm Baha'i, I spend Christmas there because my family is Christmas. I do vacations like, so we, I do it like that. But anyway, I got to Amherst because they were recruiting me. It would allow me to be a commuter back and forth, but not have to live in New York. Now, how did UMass find you? They looked me up. Really? There are two parts. One, they know someone that that knows me. They specifically wanted a public health person. And the person who mentored me, and this is the person who encouraged me to go back to school when I said, I'll never go to another school again, you know. She encouraged me to go back to school. And someone knew her. And then the dean here knew my dean at UT Austin because they wanted, they needed a public health person. And um, and I was really probably one of the most qualified people they had in that area right now. And they were, you know, in, even when I said I wasn't interested, they still stayed with me and brought me up for a visit. And I, it was a very nice interview. Mm -hmm. um, but it took my mother being... Um, ill for me to really come up. So that's how I got here. And right now I don't I, I feel a little more settled. It's like I said, I travel so much as a younger person at this point in my life, I'm not even interested in traveling. You know, like someone was saying there's a conference in California, I says, Oh, I don't do California anymore. <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't want it. I, I went to San Francisco and I said, This is too far and too much that that's not my thing now. You know, my best preferred method is let me get on Amtrak and go where I have to go. That's my preferred mode of travel now. So there's no calling you back to Africa either? I would like to. That is something that I'm not going to say no to. But at this point, I have other family responsibilities. See, it's my family responsibilities that always keep me, bring me back. And, and so I don't know. I, I think I could do a trip but I don't know if I could live there. Altogether, I lived in Africa eight years. And I don't know if this time in my life I want to do that. I think I would do travel teaching and things like that, but I don't really know. I'm trying to help with my nieces, Brooks. You know, here again, we have in our family a really strong sense of family and responsibility to our family. And... Um, so right now, that's where I'm at. 
you know, but I've been blessed because when I had no responsibilities, I was able to do whatever I wanted. And my family kept everybody together. So, you know, now it's my turn. Now, was you UMass the first opportunity for teaching or were you teaching? I've always taught. I taught, I've taught since I went back to school. So I taught um, at a junior college in New York and it's Kingsborough Community College. I taught there. I taught one year at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, but that was not a really positive work experience for me. And from there, I worked at uh, Louisiana State University Medical Center in New Orleans and stayed there till I went back to work on my doctorate. And then I took my leave, went into Austin, and went to UT Austin. When I finished there, I came back to Louisiana, but worked in Lake Charles at McNeese State University. And I left McNeese to come here to UMass Amherst. So those were the universities that, so I've essentially been teaching for uh, most, a lot of my, after I left Africa, I was teaching. In Africa, I was practicing, you know, but since I came back from Africa, because then you took my practice plus my education, and it was a very nice blend to teach and share and mold other students. And so you, did you get your doctorate in nursing? It's it, Right. It's a research doctorate in my specialty areas, nursing research, and my research area is breast cancer in African-American women. Do you enjoy teaching? I do because I feel it gives me an opportunity to help broaden the minds of the young men and women that I'm with. Um, I'm able to hopefully share with them how important I think it is to be respectful and gentle with your patients, you know, so that they come, people come very vulnerable to the hospital or when they're at home and what a difference that we can make. And I acknowledge the fact, and I always tell them, even though many people, except maybe medical students, do not realize how young these young men and women are and the great responsibility they have. They're essentially responsible for another person's life. And most 19, 20, 21 year old students who are in college don't have that kind of responsibility. So I, I really try to make them aware of how special they are because they've been given a special task, and nurses work very hard. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about your work with your studies of breast cancer with um, American women? What, um, that's my research area and an amplification on my dissertation, and um, some of the data, breast cancer is the second leading cause of death in women, and of course black women have a higher rate of mortality, a uh, higher death rate than white women, and some of it may be cultural, some of it may be social economic status, and so what I am doing is looking at the prevention or how do you get help get these men, ladies in early in their lives so that they can get screened and treated early, and I'm 
approaching it and saying, well, why, what, are, what, are, what is their voice saying? Why do they think they're not going for screening? And then sharing that information so that we can say, this is what they feel. Therefore, if we really want these ladies to come and get screened, we will have to modify what we do in health. If we're really honest and wanting to eliminate some of the gaps between the black-white death rate in breast cancer, you know, and lots of times what you'll find, and I can see it in myself, is that you're too busy with your family to give yourself the kind of time. And this is something that has been very typical of black women across SES, across social social economic status. <laughs> and so um, what I'm saying is that how do we make these ladies give time and care for themselves? And so that that's one piece of it. And then the other piece is what kind of interventions can we develop with the health facilities to sensitize them to the needs of these women and not turn them off. You know, some of the reasons they say sometimes that people are just disrespectful. And in the African-American community, especially Southerners, I know respect is really a large part of it. You know, that you can't disrespect people. And, you know, you hear the, the kids have their version of it, don't diss me. You know that you need help, but you also feel that you don't, feel that it's right to be disrespected and some of the work with the homeless will tell you that you can take homeless people who would rather be out on the street than to go to some of the shelters because they're treated so disrespectfully so that on the part of what we have to do with the health community is make them see themselves you know so that if you can see your strengths as well as your shortcomings then you can reach people who are very vulnerable and more important and then I guess the number one challenge would be providing access you know and that's an issue but if you can put people on the moon you can't tell me you can't give people health insurance okay you touched on this a little bit Jean but I want to ask you to imagine what your life would have been like if you had not become a Baha'i I think it's always difficult to predict because we don't know the future, but I can say based on many of my friends that I grew up with, I can only say what are some of the differences in my life and the lives of friends that I had that I love very dearly. And I think that what what the Baha'i Faith always gave me was a clear understanding of what I had to do. And it was up to me to gather the strength to do it. So I could very early on make distinctions. Was I perfect? Absolutely not. Did I do things I shouldn't have? Absolutely. But I was always very clear that when Baha'u'llah would say in a prayer, if you do A, you get B, and we know that God doesn't lie, then I must not be doing A if I don't get B. So therefore, my protection was that I really had to say, what you get is going to be really up to you. And then 
work to have faith that I don't have to do some of the things that my friends were doing, that I could be my own person and that I can still love them, I can still go out and say that if we were going out and we were partying, I didn't have the need to drink. I could still go, and I don't have to say, oh, no, thank you, I don't drink. Just say, I'll have a glass of Coke. And you can still have a good time because nobody knows what's in your glass, so you don't have to, you know, be a martyr, but you knew that that is, if drinking is forbidden and that's something you felt was important and how I've lived my Baha'i life, I read the writings and I absolutely know what Baha'u'llah expects of me. Some things prevent great, present great challenge for me, but then there are other things I said, I don't have to drink. I most certainly can fast. These things are not my challenge. So let me save the things I have to beg for forgiveness for with some things that really are, but not prayer, not fasting, you know. So I, I felt that I, I knew, and so I could be my own person. I could still enjoy some things with them without doing what they did. Of course, as I grew older, it became a little more difficult that I had to make choices about what I would and would not do, you know. But I felt that it kept me very, very healthy. It kept me out of trouble. And it, it's like the faith is my protection. And because even as a child, I always believed in God. Like when I was Catholic, I would go to confession. And when I left confession, I would say, okay, God, I don't care if I die now because I'm in a state of grace. So I always had a sense of God in my life. And this is what I've got from my family. So with the Baha'i faith, I just had to use that to protect me so that I could love my friends, be involved in the old world order, but not have to be like them. You know, and that's a part of what I'm trying to teach my son, which is very challenging, you know, but then he's a teenager and, you know, it's going to be more challenging for him. Plus, it's more challenging these days than in my days, you know, that kids are different, but I think it, it protected me I think um, it gave me a sense of showing me how I could draw on God's strength and doing what I needed to do and to also protect myself and to increase my faith. There are certain things. I said, as long as I don't do anything to anyone, I don't have any problems because nothing's going to happen to me. Does that mean I'm not going to have tests? Of course not. Of course I'm going to be tested. Sometimes I say, okay, God, you said I never test you more than you can bear. Well, are you sure? <laughs> but that that is the kind of thing that I've done when I talk with God so that I know that as long as I do the right thing, I will be okay. Mm -hmm. And with if I didn't have that guidance and protection, I don't know where where I would be. I might be like some of my friends, you know. And some have done well and a lot have not. Thank you very much, Jean. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Jean Swinney, a Baha'i from Amherst, Massachusetts, who teaches at UMass and spent eight years in Africa. If you want information on the Baha'i faith specifically, 
you're welcome to visit the website www.bahai.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Warren Odessa 
host of A Baha'i Perspective on Saturday mornings here on WXOJLP. As you know, nothing is really for free. Although Valley Free Radio has the word free in it, we still have to pay the electric bill and the rent and any repairs or replacement parts to our very used equipment. So we hate to hear the sound of... That's right, dead air. So please join us in supporting local radio programs that you won't even hear at your local public radio station. You can send donations to the Media Education Foundation, Valley Free Radio sponsor, at 60 Masonic Street, Northampton, 01060, and help us to stay on the air. Thanks. O Son of Spirit, my first counsel is this, possess a pure, kindly, and radiant heart, that thine may be a sovereignty, ancient, imperishable, and everlasting. The Baha'i Faith, uniting the world one heart at a time, 1-800-22-UNITE, or visit our website at www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G.
Even as flowers grow and blend together side by side
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.